You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I'm currently denying the fact that I have to pack up for a road trip. So as soon as I'm done recording this episode, I'm throwing all my equipment in a suitcase and praying it works on the other side. I was going to try and record everything for this month today, but because I did not satisfactorily finish the last two scripts of this month, travel kit it is. Anyway, right on to this week's topic. Now that we know what happened during the HUAC hearings, it's time to start looking into what happened to those who participated in the hearings. This week, the friendlies, individuals that quote-unquote cooperated with HUAC by either naming names or agreeing to bar the original Hollywood 10 and or the hundreds of names that would soon join the ranks of the blacklisted. This week, we cover the major anti-communist organization in Hollywood at this time, some of the friendlies and their relationships with communism, as well as their roles during and after the HUAC hearings, and even how one friendly managed to take his new political connections to the highest office in these United States. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. I I don't believe it's a political party. I believe it's an un-American thing. And uh, the thing that, that I resent the most is that they are able to get into these unions and take them over and represent to the world that a group of people that are in my plant that I know are good 100% Americans are trapped by this group and they represent it to the world as supporting all of those ideologies and it's not so. And I feel that, uh, that they really ought to be smoked out and shown up for what they are so that all the good free causes in this country, all the liberalisms that really are American can go out without this taint of communism. That's my sincere feelings on it. Do you feel that there is a... All right, we're back in it. Hollywood towards the end of World War II. Now, I talked a little bit about the MPA last week, but let's get into exactly what they were all about. On February 4th, 1944, a group of conservative producers and studio heads, including Walt Disney, who served as one of the three founding vice presidents, and producer-director Sam Wood, who was elected as the first president at their first meeting, helped found this group whose long-ass name is the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, but we'll just call it the MPA, or some other places call it the MPA-PAI. The group was founded with the intent to weed out the, quote, communists, radicals, and crackpots they believed were trying to take over the industry and intended to rid the community of these unsavory individuals. Further, the group claimed that the beliefs on which the group was founded most closely resembled the majority of the American peoples, and the group was founded to ensure that this majority's ideals was preserved. In the MPA's mission statement, it is clearly stated, kind of, that the group believes Americans want, quote, no new plan. We want only to defend against its, its being Americans, that which is our priceless heritage, that freedom which has given man in this country the fullest life and the 
the richest expression the world has ever known. Basically, a wordy way of saying we like our things the way they are and where they are, and don't you dare go trying to change it with any newfangled ideas. And yes, the majority of the MPA's members were wealthy white dudes. In 1947, with the help of member Ayn Rand of Atlas Shrugged fame, the group released a pamphlet to guide filmmakers from making films that might be perceived as communistic. In part, it read, quote, Don't smear the free enterprise system. Don't smear industrialists. Don't smear wealth. Don't smear the profit motive. Don't deify the, quote, common man. Don't glorify the collective. They wanted films to remain the opulent form of entertainment that catered to the poorer man that had been prevalent throughout the 1930s, basically up until the U.S. entered World War II. As I mentioned, one of the MPA's loudest members and one of its founders was Walt Disney, who blamed the strikes occurring in his studio on communists. For years all over Hollywood, employees were growing increasingly disgruntled as a result of unfair working conditions and pay at the studios. Over at Disney... Walt's inability and or refusal to listen to what his employees were trying to achieve by unionizing led him to blaming the quote-unquote other, which in this case was communists, as that was easier for him to fight against rather than reckon with the fact that he was mayhaps being a bit of an ass. Disney had actually been raised by a socialist father and had been a very anti-elite himself until he became one, tale as old as time. While his staff on the higher up end tried to reach a negotiation with the strikers, Disney angrily bought ad space in the trade paper Variety to air his grievances. The biggest protest over at Disney carried on for four months in 1941 and led to a mass exodus of employees to other animation studios. Another studio head who hated the striking was Jack Warner. Warner felt that communists were responsible for the studio's month-long strike that occurred in the fall of 1946, so he very much went the Disney route as far as culpability went. Another prominent MPA member and future friendly was SAG president at the time Ronald Reagan, who at the time was a, let's be generous and say B-list actor, whom had worked for Warner Brothers, served in the Army Reserves, and now towards the end of World War II, found himself the president of SAG or the Screen Actors Guild in 1947, which is the union for actors. Now it's called SAG-AFTRA if you're interested. Reagan and his first wife, Jane Wyman, who was also an actress, had acted as informants for the FBI in the months and years leading up to the eventual HUAC hearings. This was partially a preservation method, as the duo had been involved in the Hollywood branch of the Independent Citizens Committee of the Arts, Sciences, and Professions, or ICCASP, these names are killing me, which was a group of lobbyists in favor of the New Deals, which of course were later investigated extensively by HUAC, and also they wanted world peace. And this group had gotten the attention of the FBI because it swung a little too communisty for some. Decades later, it was revealed that Reagan and Wyman had been sending names to the FBI as to whom they worked with that they believed could be communists. Reagan himself was staunchly anti-communist, but he did have issues with the way the FBI and eventually the HUAC was manipulating SAG. Reagan didn't want the union to lose focus and descended to finger-pointing on the part of its members. It would later be stated in a biography on Wyman written by Joe Morella that the tension of outing friends and colleagues would cause tension in her marriage with Reagan, ultimately leading to their divorce. 
Though they would never appear in its chambers, several anti-communist journalists used their platforms to blast their views. One of these was W.R. Wilkerson, the founding editor-publisher of The Hollywood Reporter, which is a trade magazine if you don't know. In his front-page column, Trade Views, Wilkerson would postulate his opinions on the industry. Sometimes good, sometimes bad, always meant to be like guiding people in the industry on what to do and trends and basically whatever struck his fancy. Wilkerson would be the first person publicly accusing people in show business of being communists. In fact, turns out, learned this week, he was the one who claimed to have uncovered the communist cards later used in the HUAC hearings. In August 1946, over a period of several days, Wilkerson named 11 writers as communists whom he'd allegedly obtained cards for. A spokesperson for the Screenwriters Guild responded, stating that the reporter saw, quote, a commie behind every typewriter in Hollywood. The only person who was probably more outspoken than Wilkerson in the press on this matter would be gossip columnist Hedda Hopper, who will definitely be a future subject, and she would eventually become one of HUAC's loudest supporters. Hedda's column, Hedda Hopper's Hollywood, was syndicated in the LA Times and also had the eyes of 35 million Americans around the country. Her radio shows, The Hedda Hopper Show and This Is Hollywood, also gave the former actress an ever-elongating reach. Starting in 1938, Hedda used her column to attack or persuade her former colleagues, and quite successfully so, by and large. Hedda was also known for her staunch conservative views, so it's no surprise that she'd be a mouthpiece for what was to come. Through her column and thanks to a laundry list of people owing her favors, which she turned into tipsters, Hedda would destroy hundreds of lives and careers through her column. People called her Beverly Hills Mansion, quote, the house that fear built. The biggest media mogul probably fueling the eventual second Red Scare and all of this chaos was William Randolph Hearst, of course it was, who would use his 17 papers, four radio stations, and nine magazines to speculate wildly and frankly irresponsibly about just how bad communism was in Hollywood in the late 1940s. As the MPA grew in size and influence, and of course as the fear of communism grew in every corner of the United States, several members of the organization met with a HUAC subcommittee in the spring of 1947. Several, including Jack Warner and actor Adolf Menjou, set the precedent of naming names during these closed-door hearings. Even with the subcommittee back on the East Coast, throughout the summer of 1947, scores of members of the Hollywood community would visit the FBI office in downtown Los Angeles to give names of individuals that they thought might be communists. By October, the House Un-American Activities Commission had called 43 individuals to appear before the entire committee to testify in Washington, D.C. And now, let's do a speed run through all these testimonies so you get an idea of how these voices, with frankly poor intel and mostly uninformed opinions, managed to make a tidal wave of fear that led to everything we're going to discuss next week. Any of these testimonies by themselves would not have likely been able to turn the tide or really convince anyone in their right mind that there was rampant communism in Hollywood. But this tidal wave of powerful and famous men and women was enough to change the opinions of the American public at large, enough so that the moguls would convene weeks later to address it. Without the support of the common man they didn't want to make movies about, the entire industry would fall. 
Kicking off the hearings was none other than Jack Warner, who started his testimony hot, stating that, quote, ideological termites have burrowed into many American industries, organizations, and societies. Wherever they may be, I say, let us dig them out and get rid of them. My brothers and I will be happy to subscribe generously to a pest removal fund. We are willing to establish such a fund to ship to Russia the people who don't like our American system of government and prefer the communistic system to ours. Warner was also there, in part, kinda, to defend he and his studio's decision to make the film Mission to Moscow from 1942, which was a pro-Soviet film made in order to support the war effort to get the public at large on on the side of the war. Warner was asked if he thought the film could influence people, to which he replied, no, didn't I make it? And followed it up by saying, quote, we were in war, and when you are in a fight, you don't ask who the fellow is who is helping you. Absolutely should do that. Otherwise, you might be on the bad side. Just a thought. Anyway. Crucially, Jack Warner said something that should have stopped the HUAC trials more or less in their place. Warner testified that he was aware that there were communists in Hollywood, and every so often they tried to get in their quote-unquote un-Americanisms into studio scripts. But, Warner testified, quote, If eventually it does creep in, I cut it out. Following Warner came Sam Wood, whom spewed names with the ferocity of a fire hose. The director specifically went after the writers and their guild, SWG. Then came MGM head Louis B. Mayer, whom had to defend several of his studio's films that had been made during the war. You know, the pro-Soviet ones the government had asked them to make to influence people, which they were now saying couldn't influence people. Mayer said the only values he promoted were Americanisms. Finishing out the first day was Ayn Rand, whom was Russian by birth. Before becoming a novelist, Rand had been a failed playwright and screenwriter. Rand was called as an expert witness of the Soviet system and how bad it was. And obviously she was not a fan of that. Otherwise, she wouldn't have been in the MPA. The second day kicked off with testimony from a man that would make a statement that pretty much sums up the aggression the HUAC would execute the following week on the Unfriendly Ten. Actor Adolf Menjou declared during his testimony, quote, I am a witch hunter if the witches are communists. I am a red baiter. I would like to see them all back in Russia. Again, I just feel like I have to say it just in case there's any confusion. Communism is a political party, not a nationality, my guy. I guess the go back to where you came from mentality that is by and large spewed by the uneducated in this country has always been a thing. So that's a troubling thing to to reckon with, isn't it? Anyway, Jack Moffat, a movie critic from Esquire and former screenwriter, followed Manju. Moffat would accuse several writers and other individuals in the industry of being communists whom had convinced him to join the Anti-Nazi League in 1937. That was the one that was accused of warmongering, if you remember from last week. Moffat also accused the Screenwriters Guild of being mostly communists. I'm wondering how many of these were just like salty people who just like couldn't make it. So they just like went, it's a conspiracy because I'm great. Like, that's still a thing now. And I, I, I sh- I'm, it had to come from somewhere, right? So I'm, how much of this is like just salty people who didn't like get the career they wanted? Something to think about. Anyway, author Robert Hughes was next. 
Hughes had worn many hats in his career. Novelist, lecturer, silent film director, the list went on. Hughes was also the uncle of Howard Hughes. Hughes' biggest accusation in his testimony, which wasn't that memorable, was accusing UCLA, the University of California, Los Angeles, of being a, quote, communist-dominated institution. This accusation was stricken from the record by HUAC leader J.B. Thomas because Hughes couldn't prove it. Day three started with producer and story editor for MGM, James K. McGinnis, whom had been called to the HUAC subcommittee meetings back in May three separate times. In a surprising move, McGinnis backed his studio for following orders during the war. When asked if he thought the industry would make anti-communist content, McGinnis replied, quote, I think the industry is acquiring it. One of the most eagerly anticipated testimonies for this first week came from Robert Taylor, an actor, though not for what he had to say. Fans of Taylor's had gotten in line early that day for a chance to be in the gallery for his testimony. If you want an idea of how just how strong the favoritism was for these people, J.B. Thomas allowed a 10-minute period for Taylor to just pose and take pictures with people before he settled in for his testimony. Among many things, Taylor stated that he believed that the Communist Party should be made illegal in the U.S. After the departure of Taylor and his fans, former communist Howard Rushmore took the stand. Now a film critic for The Daily Worker, Rushmore had left the Communist Party after seeing Gone with the Wind, which I kind of thought was ironic. Because in a trial partially based on concerns of communists swaying people via the movies, the only example uncovered of anybody getting swayed toward any kind of political ideation came via a movie about the Confederate South which de-communismed a communist. So literally the opposite of what they were concerned about. Racists were fine, just don't be a communist, at least in this case. Rushmore's most damning accusation was that the Communist Party had spread like a cancer through the industry and named several actors and writers for good measure. Then came Maury Reiskind, whom also attacked the Screenwriters Guild. Day four was another big one. Like the day before, people had lined up for a chance to see the famous Swoony actors that were going to testify before HEWAC that day. Though first they had to sit through Fred Niblo Jr., the son of a silent film director, whom used his nepotism to become a screenwriter for 20th Century Fox. Niblo Jr. claimed that he had been fighting the communist influence of his guild, which was again SWG, and claimed that at every meeting, his opinions were drowned out by his communist cohorts. Alleged communist cohorts, mind you. He also accused the SWG as the, quote, spark plugs and spearhead for communists getting into Hollywood. He came off as more of a spurned, outspoken dude who didn't like that he wasn't being taken seriously by his fellow writers on the playground. Honestly, Nepo babies are kind of known for that. Next was Richard McCauley, a magazine and radio writer and former member of the Warner Brothers writing pen. McCauley dropped the most names out of any of the other quote-unquote witnesses called that week. Then came one of the reasons a crowd had formed early that day. Swoony Robert Montgomery took the stand. Like others that had testified, Montgomery had enlisted during World War II, he himself joining the Naval Reserve. So he was the whole package. Attractive, patriotic, and ready to fight those damn commies. After a brief testimony, Montgomery offered that he didn't believe enough was being done in Hollywood to actually fight communism. Former SAG president George Murphy took the stand next to defend SAG's politics during his tenure as president. He reiterated what several people had already said. Yes, there are communists. They exist in every single field. It's not just entertainment. But no, they didn't have control because they were in the vast minority. 
Following him was the current president of SAG, Mr. Ronald Reagan, whom had, of course, already been naming names to the FBI on the sly. And he began his testimony by stating that he believed that there were individuals that were in SAG that may have communist ties, but again, they and their ideas have been kept at bay. It also should be mentioned at this point that, like all of the friendlies, Reagan had received the questions he would be asked by the committee in advance. Reagan was also one of only a few that appeared before HUAC at all, who did so without their legal representation present. When asked if he believed communist messages had ever made it into a Hollywood film, Reagan stated, quote, I happen to be very proud of the industry in which I work. I happen to be very proud of the way in which we conducted the fight. I do not believe the communists have ever at any time been able to use the motion picture screen as a sounding board for their philosophy or ideology. Again, this should have been the end of it. After Reagan's testimony, journalist Quentin Reynolds observed, quote, Intelligent Ronald Reagan stole the show from his better-known colleagues, and also that the actor might, quote, have a future beyond show business. Apparently, this was actor day, as Gary Cooper came next. Cooper would refuse to name names by just full-on playing ignorant, but stated that he had read scripts that he believed had communist messages. In his testimony, Leo McCary, a producer and director whose most recent notable work was The Bells of St. Mary's, said that films should be entertainment only, as taking a political side will only cause turmoil within the community. Representation was not a thing back then, unless you were a wealthy society person. Then all the films were about you. He also stated that his films had not made one ruble from Russia, as his last two films had been about communists' biggest adversary, God. The final day of Friendly's testimony gave a much-needed break to the security, whom had gotten bumped and bruised dealing with the fanatical fans the previous two days. First was Layla Rogers, a founding member of the MPA, whom had worked as a theater producer, director, manager, the list goes on. Ginger Rogers was also her daughter. Layla's biggest thing was that she wanted the Communist Party outlawed and named some names for her grand finale. Oliver Carlson was next, an anti-Stalin writer and former communist who claimed that communists had picked Hollywood because movies could be propaganda and essentially talent was too dumb to turn down the roles in those films. The biggest testimony of this day, which you heard a little bit of if you don't recognize his voice during the first break, was probably Mr. Disney himself. In his testimony, Walt claimed before HUAC that he believed that several of his employees had been lured away from the studio by Herbert K. Sorrell, a major union organizer and member of the CSU, which was one of the unions who brawled during Hollywood's Black Friday. Sorrell had also quietly assisted Disney animators into unionizing in 1937. Further, Disney named David Hilberman, his former employee turned competitor, after Disney had laid him off in 1943, in no small part due to Hilberman's vocal frustration with how Disney was running things. This had led to a strike in 1941 at the studio, which Hilberman had been a big part of. Of course, the official reason for his termination was the studio's financial woes, not for being a rabble-rouser, because that would be illegal. Disney testified that he was accusing Hilberman of being a communist for two reasons, officially. One, because he hadn't put a religion down in his personnel paperwork. I was curious how long that was a thing. You had you had to put down your religion in the U.S. on paperwork until 1964. And that Hilberman had studied for, quote unquote, some time at the, quote, Moscow Art Theater studying art direction or something. When asked how HUAC could help fight this communist menace, Disney stated, quote, 
I know that I have been handicapped out there in fighting it because they have been hiding behind this labor setup. They get themselves closely tied up in the labor thing so that if you try to get rid of them, they make a labor case out of it. We just keep the American labor unions clean. We have got to fight for them. Of course, later, when many of the labor unions were infiltrated by mobsters, little to nothing was done because mobsters got guns. But that's neither here nor there. Anyway, I'm a little fired up about all this, if you can't tell. Trying not to have an opinion, have an opinion, trying my best to keep it out where I can. I'm sorry. One voice of attempted reason to ring out, though he didn't testify until the second week, was Eric Allen Johnston, the head of the Motion Picture Association of America, or MPAA, which is a trade organization that's still around to this day, though now it is called MPA, which tries to protect the integrity of the motion picture. Specifically, they protect the five biggest studios. Johnston testified during the second week of the hearings, but he is considered a friendly. Johnston told the HUAC members that he believed that by having these hearings and believing that communists were taking over Hollywood was utterly unfounded. In fact, he testified that, quote, it must be a great satisfaction to the communist leadership in this country to have people believe that Hollywood communists are astronomical in number and almost irresistible in power. Johnston further stated that while he was certain there were communists in the industry, he believed the number to be quite small. He did want to see the communists exposed. He was anti-communist, but he didn't want a mockery made of the industry in the process. He also requested that the committee release a list that had been allegedly made of movies produced during the war that they believed had communist messages so that the MPAA might investigate it further internally, which as far as I can tell was not done. At the end of that first week, though, the witnesses that testified returned to Hollywood and their careers. Eleven that testified the following week would not be able to say the same. During the weekend between the friendlies and the unfriendlies, Hollywood was split over what they'd just witnessed. We'll talk about what the supporters of the unfriendlies did next week, but for now, let's talk about what the friendly side did. Hedda Hopper was pissed after listening to ABC's Hollywood Strikes Back, which was a radio show produced by supporters of the Unfriendlies. In rebuttal, Hedda claimed that she had spoken to just a regular American woman that went by the pseudonym Mrs. Smith, whom said that she and her family would not be attending the pictures so long as there were closeted communists in Hollywood. By writing this, her scores of listeners and readers were given the same idea. If they were real, quote-unquote, American, Americans, they shouldn't support the movies until they do something about their communist infestation. Initially, though, after the chaos of the second week of hearings, which again, we'll go into detail next week, nobody thought much was going to happen. J.P. Thomas and Hueck hadn't uncovered any communist plots to take over Hollywood, and Daily Variety referred to it as the, quote, commie carnival. Even though J.P. Thomas had already promised his return, in those early days, the majority of the Hollywood community was mocking the astronomical waste of resources that had been required for the Hueck hearings to happen at all. Not everyone felt this way, as many thought that bringing a lot of closed-door Hollywood matters into the open had demystified them to the public at large, which could hurt their bottom line. In the following weeks, Eric Johnston was trying to patch up the holes of an ever-leaking dam because everybody was pissed at each other. As the head of the trade organization that was supposed to be protecting the motion picture, he, he legitimately did everything he thought he possibly could to try and essentially just calm everybody down. Johnston ended up calling 50 or so film executives, producers, and a whole bunch of lawyers to figure everything out. 
On November 24th and 25th, 1947, with attendees that included Louis B. Mayer, Sam Goldwyn, and Jack Warner, assembled at the Waldorf Astoria in New York to discuss what might be done as a result of what happened at HUAC and how it was starting to affect the studios. I'm sure it was no coincidence that they chose to have this meeting as far away geographically from Hollywood as possible. Keep in mind, the studios, by and large, at least the big boys, were already having issues with the government, as the government was currently trying to split movie studios from movie theaters after they'd gotten busted for basically being in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act by creating monopolies on the production and exhibition of motion pictures, and that would eventually be decided in May of 1948, so like eight months later. So they were already in trouble for basically teaming up and bullying smaller theaters and studios. If they teamed up and barred the 10 for not cooperating with HUAC, which they hadn't done anything illegal at that moment yet, it wouldn't be a great look. It would kind of prove what the government was already trying to prove they were doing. Plus, five of the unfriendly screenwriters had deals with major studios, which was one of the reasons many of the moguls had tried to undermine the Writers Guild itself. Also, the Guild provided legal counsel to its members if someone tried to screw them over. That was the thing that Walt was kind of complaining about, by the by. The writers could be fired for being bad at their jobs, doing a bad thing like something illegal or disobeying the studio. But for not cooperating with Congress? Yeah, no, they legally couldn't do that. Johnston had, before the hearings had even started, recommended just pre-creating a blacklist to undermine HUAC altogether, but the studios had turned it down at the time, as in the state of California, one can't be fired for one's political beliefs. Now, they were trying to do just that because the government was breathing down their necks, the American people were scared of communists and wouldn't support films if they thought communists were in it, they were kind of in between a rock and a hard place, hence why all the lawyers were present. Everything got quite a bit easier when, during the first day of deliberations, it came down that the House of Representatives had upheld the citations HUAC had put against the unfriendly 10, and court cases would now ensue. So they were being charged, essentially. To keep the peace for the majority of Hollywood, to preserve as many jobs as possible, Johnson suggested just to fire and blacklist the 10, and if anybody got super uppity about it, or wouldn't apologize and denounce communism if they got exposed, just to be done with it, just to cut out the cancerous root, just boom, blacklist, done. The International Hollywood Box Office was already down as a direct result of these hearings, so it was very likely the American public would be next if they did and do something fast. Nobody outside of that meeting knows exactly what was said or discussed in this meeting at length, though some anecdotal stuff has been reported. No minutes were kept for this meeting for obvious reasons. But whatever was said, the result was the result. On November 25th, a statement was issued by the MPAA, which was acting as the mouthpiece of all the studios, as well as the Society of Independent Motion Picture Producers, stating that they aren't calling the 10 guilty, but that, quote, their actions have been a disservice to their employers and have impaired their usefulness to the industry. Further, quote, we will forthwith discharge or suspend without compensation those in our employ, and we will not re-employ any of the 10 until such time as he is acquitted or has purged himself of contempt and declares under oath that he is not a communist. Also, if anyone else was revealed to be an unrepentant commie, the same fate would befall them as well. Upon hearing this, the 10 promised that they would fight this decision. 
the reactions in Hollywood to this message ranged from rage to relief. Really, the studios were damned if they did, damned if they didn't. This was a survival mode decision in order to preserve their economic well-being. If the box office took a massive hit, a lot more people would be without jobs. Though, having read about all these guys, I'm sure they were more worried about themselves and their employees, but, you know, same outcome's the outcome. W.R. Wilkerson, the Hollywood Reporter guy, saw the Waldorf Statement, as it was later called, as a way of purging the industry of a quote-unquote 30s generation of well-educated and serious filmmakers who favored quote-unquote realism and felt that entertainment for entertainment's sake was not enough. While many in Hollywood oppose the HUAC and its methods, many use the goings-on to gain favor or maybe quell any probing into their own business, probably a little bit of both. Several anti-communist films began popping up in the late 1940s and early 50s to do this. Among them were films such as I Married a Communist, or as it was later called, The Woman on Pier 13, when the first title didn't exactly draw people to the theater. Other films which depicted Soviet communism in a negative manner intended to please the HUAC included The Red Menace and I Was a Communist for the FBI. One film that stood out above the rest, though, was 1952's Big Jim McLean, which saw HUAC itself as the hero of the story. In the film, HUAC agents hunt communists in Hawaiian labor unions, insurance companies, and sabotage activities against the United States Navy. The film starred John Wayne, a fervent anti-communist, member of the MPA, and supporter of the Blacklist. Wayne supported deporting the communists, but for those who had recanted, he supported welcoming them back and even helped try and get them work. Hedda Hopper, of course, would blast Wayne for his, quote, betrayals in her column. Big Jim McLean was the only film from this era in which HUAC agents were depicted, though it was not how they actually operated. If you ever see it, that's not how HUAC did stuff. In reality, the HUAC sought out communists using more like behind the scenes tactics than the one shown in the film. If they had showed like what they really did, then that would have been a very boring movie. Again, we'll discuss next week the events that scared many people into in Hollywood into silence over the HUAC proceedings next week. But for now, let's look at the second visit of HUAC to Hollywood. Between 1947 and 1951, many of the loudest mouthpieces in HUAC had been voted out of office, and J.P. Thomas got busted for padding his payroll. By the time the gavel would fall on the second wave of HUAC hearings in Hollywood, the commission was under Democrat control. For whatever reason, this second wave didn't have quite the high-flying drama the first had had. First off, one of the new friendlies was a member of the Unfriendly Ten. Edward Demetric had fled to England when he had been blacklisted initially. There he directed two films before his passport expired, forcing him to return to the United States, where he was arrested and put in prison. He served four months and 17 days in a West Virginian prison. On April 25th, 1951, Demetric appeared before HUAC for the second time, this time answering any and all questions the committee had for him. He spoke of his own brief part party membership in 1945 and named party members. It took a couple years after this, but eventually Dimitri ended up back at a major studio for quote unquote coming clean. There were even some friendlies this time around who found themselves as both a friendly and a blacklister. Larry Parks, who I believe I mentioned briefly last week, is an example of this. He had been one of the unfriendly 19, though was never called to the stand. This time, he was not so lucky. Parks owned up to being a communist, but stated that he hadn't been one since 1945. Parks would name names in closed session, but his career was decimated regardless. Another was actor Edward G. Robinson, who, when testifying before the HUAC, confirmed some previously named as communists, including Dalton Trumbo, a member of the 10. 
Penn. Robinson had, it turns out, allowed his home to be used for meetings for several of the unfriendly 10 when he was away in those early days, and as a result, was believed to have communist sympathies. Robinson would find himself not on the blacklist, but the gray list instead, but his roles plummeted as a result. Director Elia Kazan, who was a former communist, appeared before HUAC and initially refused to name names, but ultimately did so in closed session. That was the case for several others as well, and by naming names, in an instant, dozens of careers were brought to an immediate halt. As the years dragged on, several journalists, including and frankly especially Hedda Hopper, continued publishing names of those in Hollywood she believed were communists. Hopper was in fact one of the driving forces behind the initial creation of the blacklist and used her 35 million strong readership to destroy the careers of those in the entertainment industry whom she suspected of being a communist, having communist sympathies, being a homosexual, or leading what she believed was a dissolute life. She sounds real fun, doesn't she? With hundreds of their competition gone, not gonna lie, the majority of the friendlies had pretty good careers from this point. At least professionally speaking, there was no repercussions in these, I mean, there just, there wasn't really. Walt Disney became, well, Walt Disney. He was not the the big figurehead he was that, you know, he's known as in the 1940s. He was a just a regular muckety-muck, like, studio guy. Elliot Kazan's biggest films came after the HUAC trial, though as the blacklist weakened, his name would gain some light tarnish. Jack Warner took his studio to new heights until changing tastes in the business in the 1960s forced him to retire. Like, looking at all these names, nobody really got any comeuppance other than historical hindsight finger-wagging. Oh, and of course, nobody went quite as far as Ronald Reagan after this. He became the governor of California and eventually the president of the United States. Now, him being president is a whole other topic, but it is highly likely that him becoming president or any of his political career would have happened without him initially entering politics through HUAC in 1947. So, do snitches really get stitches? Not always right away. But eventually, as you'll see in a couple weeks, through the lens of history, nearly all will be judged as they should be. We have done a pretty good job in our business of keeping those people's activities curtailed. We have, after all, we must legally recognize them at the present as a political party. On that basis, we have exposed their lies when we came across them. We have been eminently successful in preventing them from their usual tactic of trying to run a majority of an organization with a well-organized minority. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. It's summertime. You're doing road trips, doing things. Tell your friends about it. And also, if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find me, that would be huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. I also have a buy a coffee where you literally buy me a coffee. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out, the link in the show notes. I just got buttons. The buttons are really cute. Next week, what happens when an accused witch defies a witch hunt? We cover the Hollywood 10 and those whom would join them on the blacklist. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Which side are you on?